Well, you know, today's message isn't about abortion, but it is about our attitude towards God, specifically the concept of fearing God and how different you will see life when you do. And so what I'd like to do is point us back this morning to a sampling of Proverbs that deals specifically with the topic of fearing God and see why, as Christians, we cannot neglect it, but we need to mature and develop in it. So let's just take a moment to pray, and uh, we'll get on with it this morning. Heavenly Father, we want to take a moment just to pray and to, and to give you thanks and glory and honor for what you have done this week. Lord, we, <coughs> many of us have been waiting for this day, Lord, where our, our nation would, would stop codifying uh, sinful things, murder of innocent lives, and that we would be a, a culture that values the sanctity of human life, knowing it's precious because you have created each and every one of us. Heavenly Father, we, we pray that we would restore, we would get back, we would become uh, fearers of you, that we would stop living uh, according to our comforts, but according to our faith. Help us, Lord, to see you in all of this and pray, Lord, that we would uh, have a heart that wants to please you and to love what you love and to hate what you hate. Pray, Lord, we could accomplish some of these things this morning as we, as we seek your word. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so this morning, uh, what we're gonna do uh, here, uh, let's see. Okay. I hate this thing. Okay, what do you do here? Okay, here we go. This is what we're going to do here this morning. All right, we're going we're gonna to talk about four things. I'll give you a sh- very short introduction. We talk about what is the fear of the Lord, the value of fearing the Lord, and, the, and then we're going to end with the exhortation to fear the Lord. And for some reason, again, I cannot advance this. Okay, so here's our introduction. You know, as we stop and think for just a minute, what is, what is the benefit of uh, studying this topic of the fear of the Lord? Well, I thought we'd get uh, some wisdom from the past. I think Oswald Chambers, you guys know that name from the famous uh, devotional. I think he hits the nail on the head when he said this. He said, quote, the remarkable thing about fearing God is that when you fear God, you fear nothing else. Whereas if you do not fear God, you fear everything else. And I think uh, that's very well said. And this is one of the main practical ramifications of being a person who fears the Lord, and it's an attitude that will give you confidence and boldness to obey God in a hostile world. So with that said, uh, let's talk about what is the fear of the Lord. Turning your Bibles with me to Proverbs chapter 1 good place to start is always the beginning. (coughs) Proverbs chapter 1, verse 7. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. You know, if you're familiar with the the book of Proverbs, this is basically the thesis statement of the uh, entire book. The key in fact, to understanding all the rest of the Proverbs. Now, essentially, it encapsulates the character and substance of the, of the whole book. 
and it forms what we call an inclusio. An inclusio is kind of like bookends. You start here and you end here with uh, chapter 9, verse 10, which we'll look at in just a little bit. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. So the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And so it bookends this section as sort of a separate unit, but by the time you get to chapter 31, you find with the Proverbs 31 woman, the fear of the Lord comes back again. So, and, and so you end just as you be, began. But the necessary starting point, all that to say, for the acquisition of true knowledge is the fear of the Lord. True knowledge comes from the Lord and is available to all those who fear him. So what is the fear of the Lord? You know, we use that expression a lot in our circles, but sometimes we don't really understand what we're talking about. And so what I want to do is give you two different definitions, one from a dead theologian and one from a living theologian. So one from the past and one from the, the present here. Here's the first definition uh, from Charles Bridges. He wrote this. He says, it is that affectionate reverence, okay, talking about the fear of the Lord, by which the child of God bends himself humbly and carefully to, the fa- to his father's law. His wrath is so bitter and his love so sweet. That hence springs an earnest desire to please him and because of the danger of coming short from his own weakness and temptations, a holy fear, anxious care, and watchfulness that he might not sin against him. So here you could see the, um, you could see the, the relationship between fearing the Lord and the, the, the desire not to sin. The second one comes from uh, a friend of our ministry, Dr. Bruce Ware, who gives a similar definition. He says, uh, to tremble, this is the fear of the Lord, is to tremble in fear at the thought of turning away from God, realizing the rightful judgment that he could bring upon you. It is also to trust him with all of your heart, knowing that as you obey him from the heart, he will pour out upon you untold blessings. And so there you could see the other side of it too, that it's uh, not just turning away from evil, but your heart is involved in seeking to please uh, the Lord as you obey him. Well, as you can see, see from these uh, definitions, the term fear encapsulates both the ideas of shrinking back in fear and drawing close in awe. So it's not a, it's not a, a cowering fear like you know the fear like someone's going to break into the door and and murder your family but to use bridges's expression it's an affectionate reverence much like a son has towards his father right a son uh, you know a son understands that he doesn't want to displease his father and that if he uh, does something wrong that he is going to experience the 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 displeasure or wrath of his father but that doesn't mean that he doesn't have love and respect and a desire to be with his dad. And this is the idea here. So a person who, has, uh, who, who fears the Lord has an exclusive single-minded devotion to the service of God. And he's somebody who lives in humble reverence and submission to the Lord's will as this is what characterizes a true child of God. Can you be a child of God and not fear the Lord. 
Well, the answer is pretty simple. No, the, the two go together. So the attitude of the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge in the sense that it is foundational. It is the chief or principal thing to be established. It's the starting point. So in other words, this attitude towards God is what the alphabet is to language, what notes are to music, and what numerals are to mathematics. We're talking about the building blocks. We're talking about the very first steps in attaining true knowledge of God. You can't learn those disciplines unless you have the proper foundation of the basics, and the fear of the Lord is that building block to true knowledge. So, the fear of the Lord, then, is the beginning of knowledge, much like when you build a house, you start with its foundation. That's what we're doing here this morning. So think about it. Scripture is very clear that unless you have a right relationship to the Lord, you cannot know anything truly. You really cannot know anything truly. Now, that might sound strange to you, but it happens to be the truth. Um, but you think to yourself, well, but that doesn't, that's not even right on the face of it. Don't unbelievers know all kinds of true things? Well, the answer is yes and no. Yes, they can know that two plus two equals four, or that the earth is round, or even that Jesus rose from the dead on the third day. But you have to understand that's only part of the picture. The reason that an unbeliever doesn't have a true knowledge of even general things has to do with the nature of facts. We know from the scripture that all facts have meaning. They don't exist simply because they, are, they, they exist. So unless you tie the meaning of any fact back to God, who made all things, you don't truly know anything. So unless God interprets any fact for you, you won't know the fact truly as God intends you to. For example, you could say that you believe that Jesus rose from the dead on the third day. In fact, there's a very famous Jewish theologian who affirms, again, he's not a believer in Jesus, he's Jewish, he affirms the resurrection of Jesus, but yet denies that it proves that he was deity or that he was the son of God. So let's say you're like that. You affirm the, the fact of the resurrection, but you deny that he's the son of God and that he's God come in the flesh. Do you have true knowledge? Well, yes and no. One part you have right, the meaning you don't. So unless you know the interpretation of Jesus' resurrection, you won't truly know it. And the only way you'll know the true interpretation is if you think God's thoughts after him, or to put it in another way, unless you fear the Lord. That's the beginning of knowledge. So the person who tries to know anything in this world apart from God is like a branch that is cut off from the rest of the tree. There's only so much you could do there. So as I, as I start with that, you know, what is the status of your fear of the Lord? You know, do a self-evaluation in your own heart. There is a direct correlation between your attainment of true knowledge or lack thereof and the quality of your fear of the Lord. You know, if there isn't that desire in your heart to grow 
or to, or to pursue the knowledge of God more fully in your life. I can tell you one thing that is true, and that's because the fear of the Lord is lacking in your heart. You don't have a fear of the Lord and then not desire to know him better. An important principle that we ourselves must fully understand is that in the pursuit of true knowledge and wisdom, we will be surrounded by those, and you guys know this, who are going in the opposite direction and will encourage us to do the same. That's our society. That's our world. Screaming in your ears contrary opinions and a contrary worldview. And that's the reason why the scripture identifies them as fools. Not to be a name-calling, that's not what scripture does. But um, when you willfully scorn the starting point as being the fear of the Lord, and you choose for yourself what you believe, what you're going to believe, that's what scripture is entitling a fool. He's foolish in that regard. Let let me talk for a moment about uh, who and what is a fool. You know, when we, when we call somebody a fool today, we usually don't mean it in this technical theological way, right? We're, we're just trying to, you know, say, you know, you're a dummy or you're mentally challenged or, you know, something, you're stupid or, you know, we, we mean it in a, a more mean way, right? But rather than mental deficiency, in Scripture, the word focuses on moral deficiency. Someone who is lacking in moral sense because he is corrupt in his character, so you could be the smartest person walking the planet and, and scripturally be a fool, right? Because morally you are bankrupt. Such a person is bent towards moral perversion and sinfulness. And that's what makes him a fool. Not, not because, um, you know, he's unintelligent as far as intellect is concerned. Some of the smartest people in this world are fools according to God. And this kind of a person is a stubborn a conceited and arrogant person because again he has rejected the starting point humbling his mind and his intellect under the fear of the Lord and these kinds of people are therefore unteachable they reject God's word and they hate discipline and this fool shows up many places uh, throughout the book of Proverbs and when you put all these verses together here's the picture that emerges of a fool. He despises discipline and correction. He lacks wisdom and he has bad manners and speech. He lacks self-control and is hot-tempered. He's morally insolent and intractable and incorrigible and incapable of managing you know, his finances and his, and his property. And as Proverbs will go on to talk about such a person, he's ultimately going to be punished because of his folly. So such a person is the um, opposite of a wise man, and all of it is linked to the fundamental problem presented in this verse. He's a fool because he doesn't fear God, and therefore he'll be unable to attain wisdom or to benefit from godly discipline or correction. You know, fools look down upon these God-given blessings as worthless and that which is to be despised rather than valued. And uh, let me just say this about us who are believers in Christ. We too model ourselves after the fool if we ignore or disregard 
God's discipline and correction for our lives as well. So um, don't think that once you turn to Christ, you're never again going to be a fool. We act foolish all the time, don't we? When we act inconsistent with who we are in Christ. Proverbs 8.13, it took me a little longer to get through that than I thought, but Proverbs 8.13, the fear of the Lord is hatred of evil, pride and arrogance, and the way of evil and perverted speech I hate. You know, the fear of the Lord expresses itself, unsurprisingly, in a hatred towards what is evil. Again, if we're going to think God's thoughts after him, we're going to mimic his attitude. Does God hate evil? Of course he does. Then we're going to hate evil as well. Hatred, again, we know this, is the opposite of love. And so when you think of love, you think of what unites or brings closer together. Hatred, on the other hand, separates, as no one wants to be near what they hate. So hatred naturally causes you to distance yourself from whoever or whatever is the subject of your hatred. So the writer then goes on to specify former forms of evil in the latter part of the verse. Look what he says there. Pride, arrogance, the evil way, and the perverse mouth. So thinking God's thoughts after him means that we are to hate those things as well. These are not things to be emulated, though they are put on display in our world. These are things to be despised. First, both pride and arrogance comes from the same root word that means to rise. And they both refer to man's pride as it pertains to God. It's a rising up in self-will, self-promotion, self-congratulation, right? As opposed to humbling ourselves, as scripture would say, before a holy God. That is, this person deliberately rejects God's authority over his life in order to pursue his own selfish interests. Furthermore, it not only is active rebellion against the Lord, it leads to immoral behavior towards others. By the way, that's a, that, that's a very important connection, that the sins that we commit against God don't just stay in that category like in a personal sense, they always affect other people and our society. Sin affects everything, not just us. What's it going to hurt you to do a particular sin? It's just going to hurt yourself. It's not true. Uh, Any sin against God spills out in hurting other people and hurting our society. And so this kind of evil is more prevalent. These sins here... um, amongst those who are cunning and shrewd. Secondly, you know, the way of evil here refers to, the, to morally wicked ways, uh, conduct or behavior that consists of evil. You know, as you read the book of Proverbs, for example, uh, it frequently represents two roads, two alternate ways of life that are often presented. One that leads to safety if you walk that road, Uh, and then you will eventually get to life. And then there's another road. If you travel on that road, it leads to death and destruction. And, you know, 
that's what the book of Proverbs is trying to help us to see, which road to stay on and which road to avoid. Third thing, the perverse speech here refers to those who use their speech to accomplish evil. They use their mouth to contradict the Lord's way. And and, and this is what we see today, right, in our world. They speak evil of good and good of evil, right? And thus they seek to overturn the Lord's moral and ethical order, right? Well, with that said, let me just give you a couple other things to think about in relation to that. You know, number one, there is a direct correlation between the, the fear of the Lord and one's hatred towards evil. Direct correlation. As you examine yourself as to where your progress is in this area, I'd urge you to examine yourself as to what your attitude is towards evil itself. You know, do you find it repulsive, distasteful? Um, or are you kind of, you know, dead to it? Or is it, is it just kind of, you know, you're insensitive to it? Or is it appealing? Is it attractive? Does it tantalize you to, to, to want to be involved in it? See, you know that you're growing in your sanctification if your hatred towards evil is growing as well. So you should see a growth in your love and your affections towards God. And in conjunction with that, you should see an affection, your affections of hatred and distaste for the things of sin and evil, right? These are supposed to both go hand in hand with each other. So growth in the fear of God translates into a hatred towards evil. Secondly, uh, you will do what you most desire to do. You know, if your strongest affections are for things consistent with the fear of the Lord, then how will that evidence itself in your life? Well, you will love what God loves and you will hate what he hates right? If your strongest affections are for other things, it will likewise evidence itself in the choices that you make in your daily lives. You know, a person engages in pornography. Why? Because that is where his affections are at. He's engaging in it because that's what he most wants to do. That's what he loves. That is where his heart is. You know, his lust for sexual gratification, that is his highest desire, his strongest desire. So if we're looking to repent of this sin in particular, or any sin in general, it's not enough just to try to isolate yourself, just to separate yourself. Like, you know, um, all I'm going to do is I'm going to lock, you know, pornography into uh, the closet and, and then, you know, my problems are, are, are over. Hey, that might be a wise thing to do, lock it away, but you know, you realize that's not the whole answer. You still must work on your affections. You need new affections to drive out the old affections in order for there to be genuine change at the heart level. You know, why can't people diet for very long? You know, um, it's because at the end of the day, Their heart's desire is to enjoy the food they love 
more than losing weight. That's what it comes down to, right? That's where our heart's desire is. And whenever you are dealing with sin issues, unless there is a new higher affection to replace the previous highest desire in your heart, guess what's going to happen? You're going to go right back to that sinful behavior and you will never break that sinful habit. And then you just keep on falling and repenting, falling and repenting, falling and repenting. And you think, how come I can't ever get out of this vicious cycle? You have to address the most fundamental issue, and that is your heart and its affections, right? All right, let's move on. I, I'm really far behind here, so I need to kind of boogie. Proverbs chapter 9, verse 10. Uh, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and the knowledge of the Holy One is insight. This is the bookend, as I mentioned earlier, to chapter 1, verse 7, bracketing off this section as a distinct unit in the book of Proverbs. So back in 1-7, you remember we learned that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, and now we see that the fear of the Lord is also the starting point of wisdom. So what's interesting here, it sounds almost the same here in English, but the word for beginning is, is a different word in, uh, than in uh, chapter 1, verse 7, but the ideas are almost the same. This word stresses that the fear of the Lord is the first principle of wisdom, what is essentially the prerequisite for acquiring true wisdom. Now, as you think about that, what is the difference uh, between knowledge and wisdom? Uh, can you be knowledgeable and not wise? Well, yes, that's, that, that is actually true because wisdom is the practical application of knowledge. It's skillfulness in living. And skillfulness in living means you're applying uh, uh, knowledge, God's knowledge, practically in your everyday life. You know, a person can be, have tons of knowledge, tons of knowledge, be the smartest person, you know, in, in the room, but not necessarily be wise, constantly making bad decisions. And the point of both Proverbs 1, 7, and 9, 10 taken together is to stress that you can't have either true knowledge or true wisdom apart from the fear of the Lord, which then means that you have to have a right relationship with the Lord. You know, you realize the decisions that you make, the worst decisions that you ever make in your life are when you're not doing well spiritually. Don't make major decisions in your life when you're not walking with the Lord. You're, it's going to come out really bad. You're not thinking the way you should be because there are other priorities in your heart. So a right relationship is synonymous with the fear of the Lord, and it excludes secular contributions to the discipline of wisdom. We need to remember that fact, and as a consequence, guard ourselves from the influence of secular thinking. You know, every day, every single day, we are inundated constantly with secular ideology, right? From our media, from our jobs, from our schools, a lot from our schools, from our families, right? And even our friends and, and many other things. And we need to be able to recognize it for what it is and consciously reject its influence. In, in the parallel statement, we learn that it is only through the knowledge of God that we gain spiritual insight or spiritual discernment. All right, well, with that said, let's go to the, the, the next uh, section, the value of fearing the Lord. 
Let's turn in Proverbs chapter 15. Proverbs 15, verse 16. (coughs) Better is a little with the fear of the Lord than great treasure and trouble with it. So now we're going to look at some of these Proverbs that talk about what is the value in everyday life of fearing the Lord. And here we start with a comparative statement that illustrates how true wisdom exercises proper judgment. What should be the priority in a person's life? The things of the Lord or the things of this life? Faith or wealth? We all know the answer to this, right? We took a test in here. I don't think anybody would fail this, right? So the problem isn't that we don't know. The problem is, again, are we applying wisdom to our life? The fear of the Lord to our life. You know, it's not impossible to have both the fear of the Lord and wealth. But as this proverb points out, if we can't have both, we better understand that one has priority over the other. You know, all things being equal, it may be correct to say that wealth is better than poverty, but not at all costs, and especially if it interferes with or compromises our relationship to the Lord. Also, keep in mind that this is a comparative statement. And the little referred to can simply mean a modest income. And we're not talking necessarily about destitution. Like, you know, the parallel isn't between living in the gutter, right, and being wealthy. But meaning, by comparison, having an an abundance versus just being a normal person, right? Now, if you have the chance to get rich, right, but you know that it will negatively affect your relationship to the Lord, then what the Proverbs are telling us is you'd be a fool to chase down that that path. So the emphasis of this proverb is on what has true value in this life, right? What has true value in this life? Wisdom dictates what that would be and the path you should take. By the way, what is the trouble that is referred to here. The word trouble means tumult, confusion, right? Turmoil. And the connotation is a severe disturbance, right? To a a, a great disturbance in your life. As uh, uh, Bruce Waltke in his commentary says, quote, only in Proverbs 15, 16, however, is the noun used in connection with the destructive confusion, panic, and turmoil that people inflict on themselves and others in their zeal to amass great treasures. So in other words, this proverb is specifically referring to the pursuit of wealth that is motivated by covetousness and the anxiety that such a pursuit entails, not to to mention then the worry over losing it. So let's understand, the proverbs are not saying A person can never be rich, and a person can't fear the Lord and be rich. That's not what the Proverbs are saying. But the Proverbs are warning our hearts, what is the pursuit of your life, and what is the the value? Where are you placing your top values on? And uh, understand your heart and yourself so that you don't chase down something that draws you away from the fear of the Lord. So the point here is rather clear. Spiritual gain coupled with economic uh, 
poverty, and I, I use that poverty in quotations, you know, uh, having less is better than spiritual poverty coupled with economic wealth. Or to put it another way, it's better to have the fear of the Lord and satisfaction than wealth and dissatisfaction. Do you really believe that when I say that? Does that ring true to your heart? If you do, your life will stand out from the rest of your unbelieving peers because of the choices you make and, and what motivates your life's decisions. But if you don't, your life will be imperceptibly different than any other unbeliever in your circle. And so believers need to remember the salient point that life is ultimately about your relationship to the Lord and serving him and not about amassing wealth or making a name for yourself as is so apt to do from, we're so apt to do because our hearts tend towards that way. Proverbs uh, 16 verse six says, by steadfast love and faithfulness, iniquity is atoned for and by the fear of the Lord, one turns away from evil. This is an important proverb, but the first part of this verse is somewhat difficult to understand. Um, Let me try to unpack this for you here. But although the characteristics of mercy and truth are true of God, here it's being used to describe the kind of person whom God forgives and is parallel to one who fears the Lord in the second half of the verse. So in other words, they're not the cause of one having their sins forgiven, but it is the condition of the one whose sin is forgiven. In other words, a person that is forgiven by God, he, he, what does he look like in real life? He demonstrates these attributes towards other men. The word turns away carries the basic idea of turning aside or turning away from or withdrawing from something. And in this context, it refers to turning yourself away from evil's presence. Once again, the biblical emphasis for solving sin's problem is not merely isolating yourself from the world's influence, but instead deepening your relationship with the Lord. You know, ultimately, it will be the fear of the Lord that will drive away evil from your presence. You know, if you want your behavior to be truly God-honoring, then you want your decisions to flee from evil as well as to do good, to be rooted not just in legalism, not just in I should do it because it's, you know, I I should because it's just what, what I do. But no, it has to be rooted in your love and your reverence for the Lord. It shouldn't just be something you do without thinking of why you do it. Because if that isn't the true motivation of your heart in so doing, it's not true godliness. You might have an outward conformity to righteousness, but it's not true godliness if it's not motivated by your love and faith in God. A perfect example of this is Joseph when he was tempted by Potiphar's wife. You remember that story? If you think about his response in Genesis chapter 39, verse 8, you remember what he said? He said, how can I do this great wickedness and sin against Potiphar? No, against God, right? His fear of God was what kept him from committing adultery with Potiphar's wife. 
And that is the true remedy for staying faithful to your spouse and will keep you from straying, right? Why would I dare to commit such a heinous act against God by being unfaithful to my wife, by being unfaithful to my husband, right? It's not just willpower or, you know, um, making some kind of commitment, although it is that. But what, what strengthens that commitment, what, what drives that commitment is your relationship with God. Proverbs uh, chapter 19, verse 23 says, the fear of the Lord leads to life and whoever has it rests satisfied. He will not be visited by harm. This is a, a, a case of, of parallelism with the second part of the parallel expanding or carrying forward the concept of life. So you don't read these as separate, you read these as parallel statements, the second half further defining or strengthening the the first half. And although there's no verb in the sentence, a better translation might be, the fear of the Lord is life indeed. Isn't that awesome? The fear of the Lord is life indeed. And understood this way, equates the fear of the Lord with what this life itself is rather than what it produces. The word life refers to the vigor of life, the kind of life that consists of of abundant provision and sure protection. In other words, all the blessings and prosperity of life, right? Life in its fullest. And this abundant life that is described through the fear of the Lord, what does it result in? It results in satisfaction. A word that is emphatic, fully satisfied, filled to the fullest degree. In other words, a contented life is what fearing the Lord is all about. The fear, don't we want to be satisfied in life? Don't we want to be content with our life? Our whole world is discontent, and we act like that too, as if we have a reason to be discontent even though our sins are forgiven and we know where we're, we're going to spend our eternity. And for some reason, for these 70 or 80 years that we're going to live here, we're discontent and we're dissatisfied. But the fear of the Lord is what brings about that satisfaction in life. And then as he goes on to say, he will not be visited by harm. You know, the evil referred to here, the harm that's referred to here, is not moral harm or or, or evil, but physical harm or disaster. So in other words, if you desire to be the recipient of covenant blessings rather than covenant curses, and, and again, this is being seen from an Old Testament vantage point originally when it was given, you must heed the words of the Proverbs. How do you stay on the positive side of God's blessings versus his curses, right? Uh, This is the fear of the Lord. So basically, the impact of this proverb upon the Old Testament saint amounted to this. He who is living faithfully and obedient to the Lord doesn't have to worry about his judgment. Now, isn't that a great peace for your soul? That you don't have to worry that God is going to judge you because you're living the way that you shouldn't be? That's a new covenant principle as well, right? That if, if we're living in obedience to the Lord, then why would we fear God's judgment, right? It doesn't mean that he won't bring trials in our life, but trials are very different than judgment. And knowing that all is right between us and the Lord, that is really what motivates true peace. Proverbs 22 verse 4 says this, the reward for humility and fear of the Lord 
is riches and honor and life. Oh, now we come to the other side of this, right? The fear of the Lord and humility go together hand in hand because they mutually qualify one another. Now, first, for the sake of clarity, I think it's fitting to clear away misconceptions of what true humility consists of. First, it's not merely an external act of humility. Yes, sir. Yes, ma'am. Yeah, you know. Oh, oh, thank you very much, sir. Thank you. It's not merely just, you know, playing the role of the, the humble servant. Uh, a false humility um, in order to serve one's ends isn't really humility, right? Or even an attitude of deference towards others isn't necessarily true humility. It can be. But, you know, there's nothing distinctly Christian or God-fearing inherent in any of those external type of, of actions, right? The humility that the Bible speaks of is an attitude that renounces human pride and self-sufficiency. That's what humility is about. And the only means by which human pride and self-sufficiency can be renounced is through, guess what? The fear of the Lord. This is what I meant earlier by the fear of the Lord and humility qualifying each other. It is only when you see him for who he is that you can properly see yourself for who you are. So how does this combination of humility and fear of the Lord express itself? Kyle and Delich, uh, in their commentary, explains it this way. They say, for actually to subordinate oneself to God and to give honor to him alone, one must have broken his self-will and come to the knowledge of himself in his dependence, nothingness, and sin, unquote. And so if we don't see ourselves as lowly before our God, we don't properly comprehend either ourselves or our God that we profess to serve. What, what, are the, what are the benefits or blessings that result from humility and the fear of the Lord? Well, here, here's the other side of that. God promises rewards that affect all realms of life, not just one or the other, but all of life. So notice what's in the passage. Material blessings, riches, social blessings, honor, and personal life, the abundance of life. Also, as we pointed out earlier, this, this life uh, is a reference to the fullness of life, a life that is already fully blessed by God. There is an already not yet sense in which we enjoy this fullness of life. Right? This blessed life that we enjoy in Christ right now is already full and blessed, isn't it? It is already full of blessing. But that fullness of blessing is not the fullest it's ever going to be. It's incomplete, right? Because we still have sin and we still are in our mortal bodies. But the not yet is when we're resurrected and sin is eradicated from us and we live uh, with our Lord um, in, in, its, in, in the, the fullest extent of glorification possible at the resurrection. All right, Proverbs chapter 14, verse 26, in the fear of the Lord, one has strong confidence and, has ch and his children will have a refuge. 
This proverb is relevant for families who completely uh, and corporately fear the Lord, meaning your whole family is fearing the Lord together, who together hold him in the highest esteem. And as a family union, union, you seek to obey his commands. Now, presumably, the reason why the progeny of these God-fearers benefit is due to the way that they were raised in the ways of the Lord, including the good example that the parents set in the home. You know, the only way we know that our family is operating in the fear of the Lord is through the tangible evidence of humble obedience to him. You know, the state of those families who live in the fear of the Lord um, is the benefit of strong confidence here. The word translated confidence refers to feeling so secure (coughs) or confident about one's life that it produces peace, well-being in your soul. The adjective strong refers to that which is firmly fixed and secure from attack and further emphasizes the stability of the person who fears the Lord. You know, some are fearful to obey the Lord because of the consequences that may result in so doing. Persecution, right? Verbal, physical, mockery, whatever the case might be. Whereas others, because of their proper attitude towards the Lord, look at it a different way. We fear to disobey him, right? Because man and what he can do is nothing compared to what God and what he can do. So just for the sake of clarification, the reference here to the children assumes that they follow in the faith of their parents. And this is not a general promise to all biological children. I'm sorry, I wish I could make that promise for you that if you're a Christian, all your children in your household are automatically going to believe and they're all going to come to know Jesus and there's this covenant that we make. I wish that was true, but, it's, but that's not. And that's not what this is saying either. Um, I wish there was some guarantee that if I fear the Lord, that's all I need to do and my children are automatically in. But the term refuge here signifies a place of protection in time of need. It's a shelter from danger. You know, uh, a secure fortress you could think about, right? That, that uh, is your safe house, if you will. So, you know, it's the responsibility of the parents to not only teach their children about the fear of the Lord, but also to be a living example. You know, where else will they learn the fear of the Lord if not in the home? You realize, parents, that, uh, uh, you know, it isn't the church's job to raise your children, right? We, we talk about this uh, often. But it's your, we, we come alongside to help you to raise your children. But, you know, dropping your kids off at children's church or youth group and then, hey, raise my kids to become a Christian, that isn't what we're committed to here. We're not going to help you to, uh, to skirt or avoid your responsibility as parents. We're here to help you to fulfill your responsibility and role of parenting, right? They need to see it modeled in the home and taught in the home and then reinforced in the church when they come to worship the Lord. But remember this, um, parents, we cannot teach what we do not know or what we do not live. Right? We can't pass on the fear of the Lord if that's not part of our lives. In fact, your kids will not take you seriously when you teach them about the Lord if they don't see you live it out. I don't care what you tell them verbally. 
They know what you're committed to by how you live. They live with you. They know you, right? Try telling your kids, for example, about the sovereignty of God and how he is in control of everything and that we can therefore trust him no matter how difficult times become and then fall apart once trials hit and demonstrate by your reaction that you don't really have much confidence in God's sovereign plan, right? What are they going to learn from you, what you said or how you lived? Try telling your kids that we ought to live for the things above and not the things of the earth because those things are temporary. They have no lasting value beyond this life. And then stress out about your finances or demonstrate by a materialistic lifestyle that temporary things are very important. Similarly, let your, let your kids miss church because they need to finish their homework and you will be effectively setting their priorities in life for the years to come. Because again, what you say and how you live is two different things. Try telling your kids that the Bible is the word of God and has all the answers for life and that it's the authority for what to believe and how to live and that we must be diligent to live according to it and then show them that most of the time you'd rather be doing anything else than studying the word of God or occupying your time with it. What's the message to, to our kids? How will they learn the fear of the Lord? They won't learn it from, from saying one thing and doing another, right? So don't be surprised if that describes your life, that your kids begin to lose interest in the things of the Lord the older that they get. If the fear of the Lord is not central to your life, the chances are it will not be central to your kid's life at all. Now again, that's not determinative when you could be the worst parent in the world and your kid can come to, to know Christ. You could be the best parent in the world and your kids will not come to know Christ. It's, it's, it's the truth. It's how it works. But I certainly am not going to tempt the Lord by being the worst parent possible and then say, okay, save my, parent, save my kid to show your sovereignty. So what is one of the most effective ways for parents to demonstrate the importance of your faith to your children? I could answer this very sim simple. My, uh, my own take on this is the centrality of the church in your lives. Try telling your kids that the highest priority in your life should be to live for the Lord Jesus Christ and then make the church a low priority in your lives. Attend church sporadically on Sundays and have little to no involvement in church ministry on a day-to-day -day basis and center your family's life upon amusement uh, vacation, weekend getaways, and entertainment, and then see how seriously your children take you. If anything, they will see Christianity more as a religion than as a lifestyle, something you just fit into your life when you have time for, but certainly not the central aspect of your life. But if, on the other hand, you center your family's life around the church, your kids will grow up valuing it not as a peripheral part of their life, but as an integral part, and they will learn to love and value it appropriately. Now, again, that's not a promise. This is all wisdom stuff that we're talking about in the fear of the Lord. But, um, but again, I want to be able, we want to be able to put our kids in the best possible environment to where they will see modeled and taught the fear of the Lord so that even if they don't we certainly don't have to say well it's because I didn't model it I didn't teach it I didn't live it all right um, 
I have three minutes, and uh, um, I, I think I just have, I'm gonna have to fast forward just a little bit here uh, to uh, number four, and let me just give you some closing thoughts, the exhortation uh, to fear the Lord. Um, I had several here. <laughs> let me just read one of them and then say something about the other one. In Proverbs chapter three, verses seven to eight, it says, do not be wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and turn away uh, from evil. It will be healing to your flesh and refreshment to your bones. This means don't be wise in your own estimation. This indicates that you view yourself as the only wise one, that you are a know-it-all, right? And and you only have to rely upon your own wisdom is is the idea here. Now, this is in contrast to the person in verse 6 who acknowledges God in all of his ways. This is a person who doesn't need anyone else's input because their own resources of wisdom, that's all, that's all I need. That's all I need. Proverbs 26.12 says about a person like this, do you see a man wise in his own eyes? There is more hope for a fool than for him. So the person who is wise in his own eyes is equivalent to the one who leans solely upon his own understanding. What is the opposite of being wise in your own eyes? Guess what? The fear of the Lord. The positive command to fear the Lord And the negative command to turn away from evil are inseparable. And as we've discussed uh, already, the concept of fearing the Lord has to do with that affectionate reverence that simultaneously causes us to shrink back in fear at his displeasure, but also to draw near as a son to a father. And that combination is what causes us to obey him. This healthy fear of God causes us to hate evil and to depart from it. And the person who truly fears (coughs) the Lord understands that no person ever prospers by disregarding the Lord and his commands. It's more than just a fear of consequences, but the solid confidence that God and his ways are the best. You simply cannot fear God and at the same time pursue evil. I've already said this once, but I'm going to say it again. Our fear of God is directly related to our departure from sin, meaning the more that we fear God, the less that we will sin. And as this proverb points out, the positive command to fear the Lord and the negative command to turn away from evil, that forms an inseparable package. And together, that is what produces godliness and goodness. In verse 8, it, refer, it, notice the it there, it refers to the lifestyle described in verse 7, one that fears the Lord and turns away from evil. The word translated health, that has a basic meaning of to restore, to make whole. And it's, it's most commonly used in the Old Testament to refer to the, the healing of wounds or diseases. And so it probably has the idea of renewing of strength or restoration of strength. And so this verse points out that there is a direct relationship between your physical and your spiritual health. You know, when we're doing well in our relationship with with God, guess what? We tend to feel refreshed physically. And that should come as no surprise uh, to any of us because as human beings, we are body, soul, 
entities wherein our physical effects are spiritual and our spiritual effects are physical. And uh, as, as one commentator has pointed out, the motive clause of verse 8 promises physical health. Health naturally proceeds from the peaceful and well-ordered life that is submitted to God, unquote. On the other hand, you know, when we're, when we're doing poor in our relationship with God, guess what? We tend to feel poorly physically as well. Proverbs 17.22 points out, a merry heart does good, like medicine, but a broken spirit dries the bones. And that's why when you feel depressed or you're not handling things in your life in a God-honoring way and you feel awful both physically and spiritually, right? It's not until you submit your problems to the Lord that you start to feel some kind of relief both physically and spiritually. And that's what this verse is talking about. All right, well, I actually had three more verses left to do. I don't think I could do that today. But what I will want to say this, and I'm sorry, I'm a few minutes late, but let me just say this so that I don't just say amen and just leave this kind of hanging, okay? Let me just say this for a minute. The fear of the Lord begins and is rooted in the wisdom of the gospel, okay? It is only as you see your sin for what it is utterly offensive to God and worthy of eternal punishment, are you in a position to receive God's grace of forgiveness in his son, Jesus Christ? But when you do, God then breaks the power of ruling sin in your life and you now love what you used to hate and hate what you used to love and that sets you on a path of discipleship as your fear of the Lord deepens and matures. For those of you who have named the name of Christ, this is our pursuit to grow in our fear of the Lord, not on Sunday only, but every single day of our life. If you don't know what I'm talking about, the, uh, the fear of the Lord and how, how to get in all this, the answer is the gospel. You need to see yourself as God sees you as a sinner, repent of your sins, Renounce them and then give your life to Christ in faith, entrusting him with your salvation, with the forgiveness of your sins and the eternal destiny of your soul, knowing that only he can save you from those sins. Let's close our time in prayer. Heavenly Father, we give you thanks as we go from here this morning and we pray that your word will penetrate our hearts and help us to think your thoughts after you, to fear you, to know you. Uh, and to love you with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. Thank you, Father, for the Sunday. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.